From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Deborah Gortney. I'm the author of Live Through This, a mother's memoir of runaway daughters and reclaimed love. Um, my book I think of as a, a book about the illusions of motherhood and how um, my own illusions fell apart when my daughters as teenagers got into a rebellious situation and I had to rethink my position as their mother and guide. The trouble they got into had to do with um, the uh, kind of punk grunge scene in our, our town of Eugene, Oregon. And when they were 14 and 16, my daughters jumped on a freight train and disappeared. The, uh, the older one came back after three months, and the younger one was gone for about a year. And my book is about that time of rethinking who we were as a family and how to get my daughters back. When I opened our front door to come inside one January night, I stumbled over the tent I still hadn't put away since we'd opened it on Christmas morning. It belonged with the lanterns and the sleeping bags and our old rusty Dutch oven in the back storage area, but this evening it was shoved in the corner of our front alcove. I shook the rain off my coat, and so did Mary and Molly behind me. I waited for them to run off to their room to start a game of giraffes against polar bears, wolves against pandas like most every night, but they stuck close. They followed me to the kitchen, where I tossed the mail on the counter, picked up a power bill with urgent stamped on the front, and set it down again. When I leaned against the cupboard, Mary backed into me. She took my hands and crossed my arms over her chest, a big X. Across the room, Molly opened the fridge, and I smelled something, tuna maybe, or cottage cheese, that should have been thrown out days before. What's for dinner, she said. We were down to some canned vegetables, pasta, a few tubs of soup in the freezer, and whatever was stinking in the back of the refrigerator. Laundry was heaped in front of the washing machine, and I hadn't asked Mary and Molly about their homework for a couple of days, which probably relieved and scared them at the same time. I let go of Mary and reached for the phone to order a medium pizza for the three of us. For the three of us, not the five of us. For over a week, Amanda and Stephanie hadn't come home. It was raining the night they left, and it had rained every day since they'd been gone, harder and wetter, it seemed to me, after darkness set in. For eight days, I'd picked up the little girls after work and come straight home, certain that my gone-away daughters would get cold enough, tired enough, lonely and hungry enough to call me to get them off the streets of Eugene. Eight days earlier, the attendance officer at the high school had phoned me at work to say that Amanda hadn't come back after winter break. Neither had Stephanie, I found out from the middle school. They'd completely stopped going to classes, and it had taken this long for anyone to say so out loud. Every morning I dropped Stephanie at the front door of her school and Amanda at the front door of the high school, and I watched them walk in. I drove to my office pretending that they weren't meeting each other five minutes after my car disappeared, weren't buying coffee at the drive through hut on the corner, and heading downtown to be with their punked-out friends, those homeless youth anguished over in the newspaper, those disaffected and disenfranchised young people dressed in metal and black. Now the pretending was over, and I had no choice but to go home and confront my children. Music throbbed through the walls of our house when I got inside, a bass beat pounding down the narrow hallway. It was Bikini Kill. I recognized the voice and the lyrics of Stephanie's new favorite, Cat Hannah. 
This was a CD Amanda and Stephanie had bought for themselves, tuned in as they were now to girl bands and only girl bands, their old Madonna albums tossed aside with embarrassed disdain. I was the one who'd bought them holes lived through this a year or so earlier, along with Nirvana's Nevermind, and I remember the puffed-up pleasure of being a mom who carted the albums home and let her daughters hang a giant poster of a mascara-stained beauty queen on the wall of their bedroom. A few months later, I was blaming that same music for making my kids angrier than they already were and for leading my kids to this scene, this thing that they apparently couldn't come back from. I hated Courtney Love and her pale, dead husband, hated the bands spawned from them and from which they were spawned, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, the Pixies, the Dead Kennedys, hated the thudding beat that ate its way toward me now down the dim back hall of our house. I stopped at the open bathroom door, where the volume of the boombox balanced on the sink was loud enough to shake the light fixture and to tremble every pink and black droplet covering the porcelain. Amanda's hair was cut into chunks above her shoulders and dyed jet black. Ears and neck were black, too, from the dye spread everywhere, on towels, floor, the shower curtain, and on her sister's hands. Stephanie's hair was halfway to becoming the color of cherry Kool-Aid. Both girls had scrawled makeup on their faces, black around their eyes, red on their lips. Amanda saw me and nudged Stephanie, who lifted her head out of the sink. Amanda caught the back of the door with her foot and pushed it closed. I turned the knob and opened the door again. "'You're not leaving this house,' I said, knowing there'd be no discussion of missed school and failing grades that night. "'Sure, Mom,' Amanda said. She slammed the door again, and this time she clicked the lock. I got Mary and Molly out of their coats and sent them off to their room, and then I went to the kitchen to call the police. The non-emergency number, I wanted help, not mayhem. I told the woman who answered that my daughters were trying to leave and that I couldn't stop them. She paused before answering. What do you want us to do, ma'am? Have your daughters hurt you? I hung up and went to the front door. I made my body wide, my arms out, my feet spread. I waited there, a joke. If they wanted to go, they'd go. A part of me believed it might even be better just to get it over with and let them be gone. Except this night felt different than the other times they'd left. This time it seemed that what I'd stitched together in our house was about to follow them out the door as a long, unraveled thread. Amanda and Stephanie emerged from the bathroom and went into their bedroom next door. A few minutes later they were out again, their backs bent under the weight of loaded army packs and their wet necks dribbling manic panic. "'Get out of the way, Mom,' Amanda said. I reached past her and grabbed for Stephanie's skinny arm. That daughter wriggled away, and I pawed the air for a purchase on either of them. But then I stumbled over a chair that was heaped with Mary and Molly's school books and jackets— their wadded lunch bags and art projects. The chair and the stuff on the chair fell sideways, and I fell with them, my hips smacking the floor with a thud. Amanda yanked open the door, and she and Stephanie whirled into the night. The younger girls held on to each other on the far side of the living room. I got off the floor, and I told them to sit on the sofa. Stay right there, I said when they'd perched themselves on the couch and stared at me with big eyes. I'll be right back. Mommy, Molly called, but I didn't turn around. She called me again, but I went on to the car. I wasn't sure why, because I'd be a bad mother if I didn't at least try, 
because I'd be a terrible mother if I didn't at least pretend to want my daughters to come back. I pulled out of our driveway and onto the street, scanning the sidewalks for a glimpse of my kids dressed in black, hoping to catch up with them, but dreading what would happen if I did. After about 15 minutes of looking, I stopped at a payphone to call home. I told Mary to make sure the doors were locked. Brush your teeth and get in my bed with some books, I told her. It was only about seven in the evening. They hadn't had dinner. They hadn't watched the hour of television they were allowed. They hadn't practiced their times tables or cut current events stories from the newspaper. But my bed was the safest place I could think of and where I wanted them to wait. Okay, Mary said. Then I drove, up and down the streets of downtown, checking at cafes and convenience stores, the bus station, the train. After a couple of hours, not willing to leave the little girls alone any longer, I quit. The next morning, I went to the police station to report my daughter's missing. The officer I talked to stayed behind the plexiglass window and spoke into a tiny microphone. I couldn't find a microphone on my side, so I shouted my questions. I had to get to work and only had a few minutes on the meter outside, but I wasn't going to leave until I knew the police would start looking for Amanda and Stephanie that morning, that day. But the cop told me it wasn't against the law in Oregon to run away from home. It wasn't against the law to skip school. My daughters couldn't be stopped or held unless they'd committed a crime. If they'd stolen from someone, which I knew they wouldn't do, if they'd sold or bought drugs, which I prayed they wouldn't do, if they got in a fight or broke the windows of a building to climb in out of the rain, any of those things, the officer told me, would be cause to arrest them. But if they were picked up for a more serious transgression, they'd be turned over to Child Protective Services and not to me. I have to go, I said then. One more thing, this officer said, slipping me a piece of paper. I picked up the note and unfolded it and saw that he'd scrawled a phone number there. He used to be a cop in L.A., he said with some measure of awe. If you want him to, he'll find your kids. I kept myself from wadding up the paper and throwing it at his face behind the plastic to make sure he knew this wasn't my life. I stuck the note in my purse and I turned to leave. Eight days later, the Friday night I'd come home with Mary and Molly to order a pizza and wait some more. I called the ex-L.A. cop, the seeker of runaways, the finder of bad girls. I didn't know what he did to get kids off the streets, and I didn't want to know. All week I told myself I didn't need him, that we were minutes from seeing Amanda and Stephanie walk up the sidewalk that led to our little house. They'd start laughing and tell me this was all a charade, a scam, or say that they'd come to their senses and of course wanted to be home with me, with us, and go to school and take a bath and just be normal kids. Except earlier that afternoon, a friend had called to say that he'd seen them going into the taco time across from his office. A few minutes later, I went into that restaurant too, and there they were, my own two children, sitting side by side at a back table, their clothes dull, their grimy hair sticking out from their heads, the pink not so pink anymore, the black more like gray. Amanda had on wool gloves with the fingers cut off, and Stephanie had a bandana around her neck. Tiny cups of salsa were lined up between their plates of burritos and Mexi fries, and resting on the bench across from them were their fat, water-stained backpacks with plastic mugs twined to the sides and rolled gray blankets attached to the tops. I'd never seen those blankets. Where did they get those blankets? Who was giving them blankets? Amanda looked up at me heading toward them, 
She yanked Stephanie's arm, and before I got any closer, they were up and gone, squealing to each other, go, go, as if this was some game of tag, and I was it. They jumped in the women's room across the aisle from their table, and one of them threw the deadbolt on the main door. I leaned my back against that solid door and scanned the restaurant, 5.15 in the evening, and only a few people eating, the smell of grease and tortillas benignly drifting to this airless corner where I waited. Waited for what? I didn't know. I rattled the doorknob. Stephanie squealed and Amanda giggled. I walked back to the table and picked up the backpacks. They were too heavy to lift easily, so I dragged them out the door, a filthy musk odor rising from the damp canvas as they scratched across the linoleum, and my work shoes clicking with that sound of an official, professional grown-up. It was raining outside, and it was dark, and I was standing in the dark rain with the packs at my feet when Amanda and Stephanie came out to huddle beneath the striped awning. "'Give us our stuff,' Amanda said. I scooted the packs behind me, and I hung tight to the straps. "'We're going home,' I said. "'Come on.' "'You want us to freeze?' Stephanie shouted." leaning out toward me. A few people at the public fountain behind us turned to look over the scene. Give us our shit! A woman stepped into the light cast by the street lamp. Her blonde hair, done up in a neat beehive, shed delicate beads of water, and her face, held in a kind of practiced serenity, was hardly moist. I smeared the rain out of my own eyes while she started telling me about how she and other women from her church often came down on the weekends to feed the kids who had no food and nowhere to turn. She'd brought sandwiches, she said, gesturing toward a box. Did we need sandwiches? No, I told her. I wanted to add that my daughters were not among those who had nobody to turn to and nowhere to go. My daughters had a home and people who wanted them in that home, but I only silently willed her to go away. She didn't, though. She kept looking at me, boring in. Do you need help? she asked. These are my daughters, I said, and they're coming with me. Mom, get it through your head, Amanda shouted. We are not going with you. The woman moved in so that she and I stood side by side as if we were going to face these kids together. I felt the heat from her body, but I didn't know what I wanted from her. A year or two before, Amanda and Stephanie and I would have had a laugh over her self-righteousness, her certainty that she could provide easy answers with her Bible and her version of God. Now I would have given anything for an easy answer. If I believed one was possible, I would have asked this stranger to bring it forth, to lay it on the street like a shining fish or sparkling wine, so I could claim it. Let's get out of here, Stephanie said. She and Amanda started walking toward the corner of the building, toward the broad streets beyond. Hold on a minute, the woman called. The girl slowed down, stared back. The churchwoman put her hand on my wet shoulder. Why don't you give them the packs, she said. Amanda linked her arm with Stephanie's. They waited to see what would happen. They'll be cold, the woman went on. You don't want this to be more intolerable, do you? They need their things. Get lost were the words that formed in my throat. Leave me alone and stop handing out food and money and understanding to my kids and those blankets tied to their satchels. That's what I wanted to say, but I only watched her pull her raincoat tighter while she gave me time to answer. And even though I didn't think I would, even to the second of doing it, I opened my fingers and I let go of the packs. They slumped to the ground. The woman took the straps into her own hands. I'm sure they love you, she said. I'm just sure they do, and I'm going to pray for all of you. 
A few hours later, at home, after our medium pizza was ordered and on its way, I sat at the kitchen table, numb. I'd given the skeletal version of my family's troubles to the XLA cop. He'd read off an address and told me to meet him there at the mysterious hour of midnight. Molly came into the kitchen and pulled my arms apart, wedging herself into my lap. What are we going to do tonight, she asked me. I don't know, I said. Whatever we did, they had to be asleep at twelve so I could leave, leave my house and my daughters, to meet a stranger and ask him for help. What do you want to do? Mary walked in then, carrying the box from Christmas. Let's put up the tent, she said. I stood up, moving Molly off my lap, and took the box from Mary. Why do you want to do that, I said. We'll get it out next summer. My little girl stood in front of me, still and quiet. Mary's pants were too tight and too short, her long legs poking out the bottom, and Molly's hair was in big need of a trim. Neither one of them had asked for anything for weeks, for months maybe, just skidding around as best they could on the ice rink we were living on in those days. Okay, I shrugged. Let's put up the tent. We shoved furniture to the edges of the room, and Molly brought me a paring knife to slice open the box. I pulled out the folded canvas, and I handed it to Mary. It sent out a scent, both chemical and earthy, as we opened it wider and wider again. Molly dumped poles and metal stakes from the bag. They clattered and rolled. Mary linked the rods, and we pushed them into loops, and a few minutes later, the three of us watched the structure rise to the ceiling like a hot air balloon. The pizza guy came to the door, and I paid him, giving him a tip for not commenting on the camping gear in our living room. When the girls got plates and napkins and sodas, I went to the storage closet for three sleeping bags. I laid them out inside the tent and moved the TV in, too, setting it on a small table. I zipped up the flap, and Mary sat down on her bag with Molly next to her, teetering pizza-filled plates on their laps. My girls watched Friday night sitcoms, and I watched them. The rain beat against the roof of our house so hard, it sounded as if it were falling right on the tent, waterproof, sturdy, and roomy enough to sleep five. At quarter to twelve, I put Mary's arm inside her covers, and I tucked her in tight. I moved Molly's head back onto her pillow, and gathered up the soda cans and the last of the dirty napkins and carried the garbage into the glaring light of the kitchen. I slipped out the front door, locked it behind me, and backed the car out of our driveway. I pulled into the parking lot of a Carl's Jr. a few blocks away. The grill had stopped cooking, and the place smelled like cooling grease, like bread left too long under a warming light. My stomach flipped, queasy and shrunken. Sitting at the first orange table was a burly man with neat brown hair, cut short. He wore a white dress shirt, every single crease in place. Steve, I said. He nodded. I sat down and handed him Amanda and Stephanie's school pictures. No dyed hair yet, no piercings in their faces, no hard lines around their eyes. I gave him a map drawn with Mary's marking pens of the girls' hangouts, the punk music Icky's Tea House, the IHOP that stayed open all night. I gave him $200 for my savings, which covered only the first night of searching. When we walked outside, Steve took my hand in his, squeezing my fingers together. I'll find your daughters, he said. I noticed then how his ears stuck out from the sides of his head. His neck was too thick to let him button the top of his shirt. Behind him, through his truck's windshield, I saw an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror in the shape of a naked woman, 
her bare breasts in a high salute. Before I could change my mind about what I'd set in motion here, he got in that truck and he drove away, splashing puddles over the asphalt. I watched the truck disappear toward the center of town, and I let the rain run through my hair and down my neck. It soaked my coat and my sweater, and it wet my skin. It filled my shoes. I thought if I stood there long enough, the rain would melt me into a different woman. The rain would shape me into a different mother. Maybe it would pound into me which of my choices had been wrong, which turns were misdirected. Maybe the rain could tell me how this had all gone so bad. Maybe if I was cold enough and wet enough, I'd finally have a reason to go home. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.